Hello, and welcome to Between the Rows. I'm Geraldine Witchers, reporter with the Manitoba Cooperator. In the 1986 movie, The Fly, a brilliant but eccentric scientist named Seth Rundle, played by Jeff Goldblum, accidentally fuses his DNA with that of a housefly. At first, the mistake seems beneficial. Rundle finds he has greater strength and stamina. He's more, shall we say, virile. But before long, Brundle's body begins to transform. He grows bristles. He vomits corrosive enzymes. He loses his human reason and empathy. And his body transforms into the grotesque Brundle fly. A few years after this movie came out, the first genetically modified food hit the market. It was a tomato called Flavor Saver that took longer to rot, hence it was easier to ship. I can't help but think that when lay folk like me think of genetic modification, we think of the Brundle fly. Sure, it looks good at first, but what if things spiral out of control? Well, this year, Health Canada revised its rules to allow more gene-edited foods to enter the market without special safety checks. More on what gene editing means later. The Canadian Food Inspection Agency, CFIA, has telegraphed that it will do the same for seeds. This has been controversial. We'll talk to two Canadian experts about why. But first, a word from our sponsors. When you step foot on my farm, you become a part of it. I will tell you all about my land, what's working, what's not, as if we've spent our whole lives together. Our passion for farming makes us a community. And as part of that community, I want to see us all be successful, whether I'm working on your farm or with my job at Case IH. My name is Kelsey, I'm a farmer, and I work for Case IH. Case IH, built by farmers. Before we talk to our experts, a quick word on gene editing. Genetic modification can involve taking genetic material from one organism and moving it to another. But when we say gene editing, we aren't talking about that. Think of it more like a word processor, with the plant's genome as a document. A gene editing technology like CRISPR can go into the document and delete a word, letter, or maybe swap them around which as anyone with autocorrect knows, can really change the meaning of a sentence. This can really speed up the process of plant breeding because it allows scientists to target a specific trait. Plant breeders are excited about this because time is money. Now on to our experts. Cami Ryan is social sciences lead with Bayer Crop Science. She's Canadian, but she calls Missouri home now. She studied the social and economic side of GMOs, including the shortcomings of how they are rolled out into the public sphere. I asked her about the difference between the public view of genetic engineering and the scientific consensus. Pew Research Institute did a study in 2015 and it said, I've got it up here, 88% of scientists surveyed uh, said that G G genetically engineered foods are safe while the 37% of the general public say they are unsafe to eat, or they, that they only 
37% of the public said that they're safe to eat. So you've got like quite a difference between what science says and what the public says. But we know how science is. Science is a way of knowing. There's process behind it. It can be politicized and it can be problematized. And it also is put through the filter of the media. But science is science. It's a way of knowing and learning. And what we know from the science that's out there, there are thousands of studies on GMO foods and genetically engineered crops that uh, attest to the safety of them. And there are hundreds of health and safety and food safety organizations all over the world that also attest to their safety. But scientific consensus does not equate to social consensus because social consensus is shaped by other factors. It's shaped by perceptions. Let's, let's, let's talk about when the first genetically engineered food came out and it was the Calgene uh, flavor saver tomato in the 90s, right? That was before genetically engineered canola and other things came out. So it was first approved for release. And um, a lot of the drivers for the anti-GMO movement started in the EU. And that's actually where the uh, flavor saver tomato was launched at the time. And there was a lot of pushback there. And there were uh, organ very influential organizations, NGOs, and individuals that were pushing back on that. And, you know, food is food. Food is a very personal thing. Uh, and I think that that that, uh, that original uh, movement came from a grassroots level of real concern about what was happening in, in our food system. Um, and let's face it, we have never been good about talking about science like that. It was a communication failure from the proponents from the from the onset so i mean that mistake was made very early and once that happened as soon as you have a gap in information then you have room for some of these other maybe anti-narratives to fit in more easily in the public psyche so you got bad press you got campaigns from non uh, from non-governmental organizations and individuals you've got inflammatory stories and you've got uh by 2001 you've got a growing distrust between science and the public that are that, that that see this connection between the institutions that seem to be in charge or or you know being kind of the arbiters of all of this science and this kind of is just sunk into the public discourse and it once it took hold it was really hard for it to move you know out of that you had the bsv crisis like that was another thing that just kind of compounded things so the bsv crisis yeah, the mad cow disease. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, how is that connected? Well, it, it was the timing. It was a distrust. It was about the food system. So, you know, you take it up to kind of that, that bird's eye level and you go, you, you already, you have GMOs coming out and then all of a sudden you have something happening uh, in, in, in another part of the food industry and it's government's part of it. The private sector can, can be kind of pulled in. And then all of a sudden that People are very good at putting things in boxes. And if there is no information around to clarify some of those things, it's very easy for the brain. We all do it because that's what we do, is we just fill in with stories. And I think if there's anybody who even has uh, an ulterior motive, they can help shape that narrative in very interesting ways. When people were like at the grassroots level, when it began, what were people worried about with like the flavor saver tomato or the, the first sort of GMO foods? Just not natural, right? Like if it's, if it's created in the lab, it's not natural. And 
we have, we as human beings have a weird relationship with the word natural. I think we think natural good, but natural is also hemlock. Natural is also arsenic. Natural is also a bear in the woods. Like natural is not necessarily safe and healthy, but I think that that's what we like. It's, it's, I think we get lost when there is in uh, inter there's to be a scientific interference in what is perceived as natural, right? So we know the food that we eat, whether it's been genetically engineered or not, uh, now is not the same as people used to eat, you know, thousands of years ago. It's evolved, right? Like, like where do you draw the line with natural? But I think that something that's perceived to be baked in the lab is kind of just in that position. So I think that that's probably what happened at the very beginning when you had that grassroots movement. Um, and also there is uh, an anti-corporate uh, sentiment that, that pushes back against all of this as well. So those perceptions all kind of feed into this narrative. And yeah. I guess you would know, like you work for Bayer Monsanto, which is like the big baddie in, I don't know, 75% of the <laughs> conspiracy theories. Yeah, yeah. Monsanto still comes up and it doesn't even exist anymore. <laughs> it's so funny because I wrote a paper, I don't know, years ago criticizing Monsanto for how they handled the, the communication and rollout of their technology in the 90s. And, and you can go back in time and you can do like a media analysis of really how they laid that out. And I would guarantee you now that any company in this industry would not handle things that way now. We learned. We learned late and we learned the hard way and we haven't quite got it yet. But I think most companies understand that, you know what, they made a huge misstep by not communicating uh, appropriately about the technologies. I think what people were doing, it wasn't nefarious at all. They were just going, this is amazing. This is this is going to revolutionize, you know, how we feed the world. I, I believe that they really were doing the right thing. What, what you don't know is even if you are doing the right thing, it doesn't mean you don't talk to people about it. Because even though uh, a lot of the, the genetically engineered products that came out, they had more benefit for on the farm, right? Clearly, it wasn't the consumers downstream, which is a mistake too, by the way. But um, they, they just... They impacted the farm, but who ends up eating this? It's the consumers downstream. And at one point, industry only thought, well, we have to talk to shareholders, our employees, and our customers who are the farmers. We don't have to worry about anything else. And we're learning, no, <laughs> that's not how this goes. Uh, we have to find ways to communicate to diverse audiences. And um, you got to find ways to message that are meaningful to them. Otherwise, you just lose them. Actually, one of the great things about gene editing that I think is so exciting is that there are a lot of small and medium companies out there are beginning to develop products with this and like vegetables, fruits, and things that, that, that the general consumer can wrap their heads around. All of a sudden, if you're, you know, developing a uh, more nutrient intense uh, purple tomato that looks great on your salads, like I'm, I'm in, man, I love it. So, or you want uh, a, a fruit of some kind, like, like there's the, um, there, there was a new one that came out. 
it's a berry, can't remember. Anyway, but all of a sudden you got something for your cocktail or for, for your next, you can relate to it because it's something that you have. Whereas if you, if we're genetic, when we're genetically engineering, say a corn crop or soybean that is going into animal feed, we're, we're that much farther away from the value of what that transformation brings to that crop. Whereas gene editing has this op these have these opportunities ahead of us where we can actually really as consumers benefit from, from this science. I guess then the question is like how how important then is it to um, to communicate those benefits and communicate how they got there? No, but there's a lot of um, small companies that are popping up. And what you notice is, like, over the last several years, there has been a lot of people in the industry that have, you know, had to tough it out over some controversial times with biotechnology, uh, GMOs, and so forth. And you've seen this uh, people that come up with expertise, not only in companies, but like at Cornell Alliance for Science. They've got a group of individuals that are doing, have been doing things for years and from all over the world. So there have been competencies being built up around understanding and being able to communicate the complexity of some of these sciences. So now you have gene editing and you already have people that have cut their teeth on these other things. And they're starting to get picked up by these smaller companies. So we have really great people coming out of Cornell that have been picked up by, uh, like for instance, Airwise. Uh, my friend, Sarah Evanega, who is an amazing communicator on GMO. She was with Cornell Alliance for Science for a long time, and she's working with Pairwise now, and she's a great communicator. She knows how to do those things. So I think that these small, medium companies are not only excited about the prospect of their science and their technology and what it can mean for consumers and for our food system, but they also understand, hey, I got to... I got to front end this with some good communication and I got I to gotta help the, the consumers understand where the value add is for them. As the CFIA prepares to revamp its guidance, one of the sectors that is most worried is the organic growers they see free-flowing gene-edited crops as a sort of existential threat because organic certification prohibits any form of genetic engineering. Marla Carlson is Executive Director of Sask Organics. She joined me to talk about why organic farmers are concerned. I would say back in the 70s, there was a, there's an organization called iFoam Organics International, and they were really the first to codify uh, an organic standard. And so when Canada was um, uh, introducing its own standard, um, uh, it, it, it based it on the iPhone organics four principles of organic agriculture. And those four principles are health, ecology, fairness, and care. And it's the ecology principle in particular that kind of relates back to GMOs or genetically modified crops and why they're not permitted in the Canada Organic Standards. So the, the ecology principle states that organic agriculture should be based on living ecological systems and cycles to work with them and emulate them and help sustain them. So we're trying to attain ecological balance 
through the design of farming systems, establishment of habitats, and maintenance of genetic and agricultural um, bio or diversity. And so I think that for me, that's the genetic modified seeds don't align with that principle of ecology because it's not contained within the farming system. It's some, something that you're, you know, it's, it's a seed that's been altered in a lab and then being brought into the farming system, which then will impact the, you know, the, the natural, the natural system or the naturally, the, 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 the biodiversity that is in that, that farming system. In 2020, the organic sector reviewed its certification guidelines and decided that gene editing fell within its definition of genetic engineering and wouldn't be allowed in organic farming. So changes around Health Canada's guidance around gene edited foods and potential changes to the CFIA's guidance will likely make it easier for gene edited crops to enter the marketplace. Why is this an issue for organic growers? For sure. And I think what I'll focus on today is the is the proposed new guidance of part five of the Seed Act, which is the CFIA portion um, uh, of your, your question. And our the organic sector's concerns uh, with with the change uh, to the rules or the, the proposed new guidance is that it relinquishes federal government regular regulatory authority over some seeds produced using um, uh, gene or genetic editing techniques. Um, and it's proposing that uh, companies now or seed breeders would be responsible for environmental safety assessments and that um, it, al it will allow new GM seeds on the market without a mandatory registry or notification to the public or farmers um, of, of you know, the you know, new GM seeds entering the market. And so um, for organic farmers in particular, uh, you know, it's the, it's the lack of a mandatory registry that concerns us. So what this means for organic farmers is they, they won't know what seeds they're buying, and they, which means that they won't be able to meet the core requirement to ensure seed is non-GM or genetically modified. And then that means that we won't be, or organic farmers won't be able to implement risk mitigation me measures that they need to protect their crops from GM contamination. Basically, farmers use buffer zones between organic and non-organic crops to ensure that their organic crop isn't contaminated or cross-pollinated. How big the buffer zone must be depends on the crop. It could be anywhere from eight meters to three kilometers in the case of GMO canola. In fact, because of the wide buffer zone required, Marla said it's almost impossible to grow organic canola in Saskatchewan. What are the consequences for organic farmers if their crop does get cross-contaminated? It's no longer organic and they will lose certification on that land. Uh, and that means that, you know, that it means that um, it takes three years of transition uh, to bring that that land back into organic production. What kind of like what kind of endeavor is that? How much of a, a loss in terms of effort or finances, et cetera? Um, well, I can't quantify it at the moment, but it's like basically three years of no organic crop premiums or you know organic pricing. Um, yeah, which you know, and I mean, 
the thing with contamination is that the organic farmer is is following the organic rules, right, and doing everything that they can to mitigate uh, the, the risk of contamination. Um, but they're still, you know, they're still penalized financially, um, you know, for three years uh, in in that time that it takes to transition that land back into organic production. You know, and that that impacts obviously, you know, their the you know the the profitability and resilience of their farm. My understanding is that that um, groups like CODA have been lobbying for some sort of protections for organic growers. Um, do you see a way that gene edited crops and organic growers could coexist? Well, I think the only you know from, from I think from the organic sector's perspective, the only possible way that they could coexist is through mandatory mandatory reporting in a database held by by the CFIA. Um, you know, the, the strength of our, you know, of our certification and our brand is based on third party, you know, third party certification and verification. And so, you know, to, you know, and 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 this, you know, the CFIA is the regulatory authority, you know, for us is is makes the most um, you know, is is the regulatory 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 authority that should be um you know responsible for holding that you know holding you know having the mandatory reporting and uh maintaining the the database on new ge crops or gene edited crops are you getting any signals from the cfia or the federal government as to where they're headed with this uh, sure. Well, in September 2021, um, Minister Bibo, uh, in a radio, a French language radio uh, interview, gave assurances to the organic sector that she's issued high-level guidance to guarantee the traceability of new GMO seeds, and we're encouraged by that. And since then, um, the AFC has convened meetings between the organic sector with representatives across Canada, including CODA, OFC, and the Canadian Organic Growers as our national organizations and provincial organizations. Um, and they've also invited CropLife, Seeds Canada, and the Canada Grain Council to see if we can arrive at a you know, sort of a consensus solution. Um, but um, CropLife, Seeds Canada, and the Canada Grain Council um, they introduced a voluntary, what they're calling a voluntary transparency database, and that just doesn't meet meet the, the the needs of the organic sector. Again, you know, from our perspective, the CFIA holding a you know requiring uh, you know the mandatory reporting and, and holding that database is is the solution that we're looking for. Um, and at the moment, uh, we're, we're waiting, the organic sector is waiting to hear back from AFC, CFIA on a solution that, that guarantees the traceability that, that we require. Before we go, a quick word on public opinion. This year, the Canadian Centre for Food Integrity asked people if they looked for assurance logos. That includes things like organic certification or free trade. 25% said yes, they do. 63% said no, and then there were some people that weren't sure. The top assurance logo people looked for? Non-GMO Project Verified, followed by organic certification. This has been another episode of Between the Rows. I'm your host, Gerilyn Witchers, reporter with the Manitoba Cooperator. This episode was produced by Bruce Thorson. Until next time, stay away from houseflies.
When you step foot on my farm, you become a part of it. I will tell you all about my land, what's working, what's not, as if we've spent our whole lives together. Our passion for farming makes us a community. And as part of that community, I want to see us all be successful, whether I'm working on your farm or with my job at Case IH. My name is Kelsey, I'm a farmer, and I work for Case IH. Case IH, built by farmers.